Hello and welcome to episode five of the Real Recognize Real podcast. So we're about two weeks out from the 2020 Oscars and talking about the nominations in general is a little passe, but there was a fairly interesting statistic uh, about the nominations this year. Four movies garnered double-digit nominations. That's the most of any ceremony ever. Joker got 11, and The Irishman in 1917 and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood all got 10. So instead of going over the nominations in general, the clustering of so many nominations with so few movies led to an interesting thought experiment. What if movies could only get one Oscar nomination? So, I did a little bit of thinking, and, oh boy, that would be 124 movies with 124 nominations. That's a little bit much, even for me to figure out for all 24 categories. So, I'm just going to take a look at the major eight categories, that is, Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, and Adapted Screenplay, and and see how I would divide them up if films could only receive one Oscar nomination. This is a two-part episode. In this episode, I'll be looking at Picture, Director, and the two Screenplay nominations, and in the next episode, I'll be looking at the four acting categories as a block. Starting off with Best Picture, the way I thought about Best Picture was films that otherwise would have garnered multiple nominations, even among these eight. That these had so many above-the-line nomination-worthy performances or direction or screenplays that I just had to fit them in somewhere, but the one nomination restriction was just too restrictive. So I came up with six movies. Parasite, The Lighthouse, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Little Women, Marriage Story, and Apollo 11. Now, Apollo 11 is the odd, the odd one out here. It's a documentary. It would not be eligible for any of these other seven categories. Hell, a documentary has never been dominated for Best Picture in real life. But it's, it's just so good. It's so good, and so I had to leave it here. I had to fit it in somewhere. Moving on to Parasite, I would have given it director, original screenplay, and you could fill out the supporting actor and supporting actress categories with with five Parasite nominees each. So a minimum of two, a maximum of like seven. With The Lighthouse, uh, I would have given director for Robert Eggers, supporting actor for Willem Dafoe, and original screenplay, Robert Eggers' direction especially. The Lighthouse got an Oscar nomination for Jaron Blaschke for its cinematography, but part of that is the direction, and I thought that Robert Eggers' direction of that film and his direction of the actors was really important, especially since it's a very actor-driven horror film. For Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino, director, Leonardo DiCaprio actor, Brad Pitt supporting actor, and I would have given Margot Robbie supporting actress along with Quentin Tarantino for original screenplay. I know people have problems with 
Margot Robbie in the role of Sharon Tate, but I think it does it does a good job in what it's trying to do more than can be said for somebody like Anna Paquin in The Irishman. Little Women, jeez, uh, where do I begin? Saoirse Ronan for actress, Laura Dern for supporting actress, and adapted screenplay, and finally Greta Gerwig for director because apparently the former three elements just directed themselves apparently. And I'll just leave it at that. Marriage Story, I would have left Noah Baumbach off my director list, but Adam Driver obviously would have made my actor list. Scarlett Johansson would have made actress. Laura Dern would have made my supporting actress list. And Noah Baumbach would have made the screenplay list. So, unfortunately, in this weird one nomination per movie reality, Laura Dern gets a grand total of zero nominations, even though she is worthy of two. I know that that's just how it works out, but in real life, I wouldn't be mad if she won for either her role as uh, the lawyer in Marriage Story or Marmy in Little Women. I happen to like her role as Marmy a little more, but hey, can't complain. Moving on to director, we have Maddie Diop in Atlantics, Sam Mendes in 1917, Selene Sciamma for Portrait of a Lady on Fire, James Mangold for Ford v. Ferrari, and Laj Lee for Les Miserables. 1917 and 4v Ferrari are sort of of a piece here. They're both technical marvels that are sort of lacking otherwise. They're really, really good on the big screen, and they're really impressive technically. But they're kind of almost like... They're almost like Gravity, in a way. Uh, Gravity, when it came out in 2013 and you saw it on the big screen... Technically, just such an impressive film that doesn't kind of hold up on on a TV screen or on a computer monitor. You needed to have that that capital B big, capital S screen experience to really get the full impact of that film. And I think that 1917 and Ford v. Ferrari are both sort of in that camp. They don't have good screenplays. Uh, the acting is fine in both films, but they're both really in the best picture race because of their technical achievements. And the best way to re reward that in any universe is with a director nomination. Same thing with Laj Lee for Les Miserables. The script's not great in Les Mis. Uh, the acting is great, but he... he makes it on this list purely because of that last 30 minutes, and purely because of the literally explosive nature of of that sequence. And it just, I, I want him, I would have loved to have seen his 1917 or his Ford v. Ferrari because he just, he knows how to direct an action sequence and he knows how to just build tension throughout a film and have it pop and explode just the right moments. And the last 30 minutes of Les Miserables would be a frontrunner for a live-action short Oscar if it were just that 30 minutes because they are that good. And I really hope he gets a good screenplay one day because with a good screenplay, he could really create a true masterpiece. Speaking of another first-time feature director, we have Maddie Diop for Atlantics. This was her first feature? Somehow? Like, you just... You watch this movie... And it has this poise 
and confidence and I don't want to say maturity or cockiness, but it just moves in such a way that you get the sense that Maddie Diop was almost born to do this. She directs this like it's her 15th film, not her first. The directing and the way she moves the actors and the way she frames the frames the film and blocks the actors, it's... There's a, there's a certain scene in a stairwell about a third of the way through the film and the way the scene is written and composed and just the physical environment and the way Diop plays with it, it just, it's, it's incredible. And that scene alone would get her a nomination, uh, throwing away just the rest of the film, which is even, which is even better than that scene. And it just, she is absolutely deserving of a nomination here and how Atlantics didn't get a Best International Feature nomination, uh, it boggles my mind. Same thing with Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Celine Sciamma. It takes balls to use the same music cue twice in one film and have that be it for music. You can talk about not having music or only having it appear once, but using the same cue twice, the exact same cue, that that takes a certain clarity of purpose. And like that that phrase, clarity of purpose, defines this film. It is Portrait of the Lady on Fire is such a masterwork. It is planned down to the last detail, but it feels so natural when certain you know when a character does anything it just feels like the natural progression of what that character would do at any given point in time and just the way the film has this economy of language it knows exactly when to deploy words and it uses turns of phrase that just say in a few seconds what other films would take entire scenes to to accomplish in a perfect world four out of the five films here in my in my in this director lineup in this alternate reality would be in the best picture conversation because holy crap these are all masterpieces in one way or another will all of them hold up over the next five ten twenty years who knows? Not for me to say. I, I don't know. But as of this moment, all of these films can can rightly be considered considered masterpieces. Moving on to original screenplay, we have Knives Out, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, High Flying Bird, Booksmart, and Honey Boy. Knives Out is the only crossover between the actual Oscar category and this imagined Oscar category, and rightly so. It's a wonderful script. It pays it pays homage to the Agatha Christie murder mystery of yore, but it really plays with that format to to say something about class inequality and how we see other people 
and how privilege is used and abused in in modern America in a way that I really didn't expect. I didn't expect the script to be this deep. I expected a I expected a script that would be too intricate to really say anything, to be so obsessed with the mechanics of its of its murder mystery to just not have a message and I was blown away when I realized, oh, this is where we're going. And you realize that very, very early on when maybe 15 minutes into the movie, okay, this is what this film is trying to say. And it it does it very well. And the same thing can be said with, with The Last Buck Man in San Francisco. And with this film, yeah, Joel Talbot's white, but... It feels like a film only him and Jimmy Fails, the, the the lead actor of the film, it feels like a film that only these two could have made. It is a love letter to San Francisco in ways that films like Blind Spotting or Sorry to Bother You really aren't. Those Two films are also films that wrestle with the idea of the modern Bay Area, but Last Black Man in San Francisco wrestles with the idea, but it doesn't lionize the past to any degree. It treats the past with reverence and realizes that there are elements of the past that that we should preserve, especially in a city that is at once tied to its past and also constantly running from it in a way but the last black man in san francisco also realizes that we need to look into the future and not hold on to our past and not let our pasts define us and that's a very that's a really thin tightrope to be walking and it just straight down the middle without any hint that it's going to fall on one side or the other. It just goes right down the middle, and it's it's a real beauty to watch. Same thing with Honey Boy. Honey Boy could have been 90 minutes of Shia LaBeouf self-aggrandizing, and it's it's not. It's, in my opinion, the most brilliant depiction of civilian PTSD ever put on screen. And, you know, I, I feel like the idea of people saying, oh, I felt seen by this, that, or the other, I feel like that gets overused. But in that first scene where Otis is told by his psychiatrist that he has PTSD and he just flips out and tells her she's wrong and just can't believe her and just denies it to to the end like that it felt like my experience was being put on screen if i i started crying at that scene and i didn't i didn't stop because this film felt it felt like it felt like it was me almost like it was a biography of me so much as it was Shia LaBeouf, like it, it felt very personal in a way that I'm not even sure I could write something 
so personal to me and have it be that good and have it be that universal and have it be something that doesn't something that doesn't treat you as it doesn't treat Shia purely as the victim it realizes his faults and tries to work through where they came from and how how he can can overcome them and that's something that a lot of scripts try to do but I don't think many of them are are as successful at at doing it as honey boy and now we have the other two Jesus I don't know I don't know how I'm going to transition um so the last two are high flying bird and book smart high flying bird is here just because it takes something so esoteric MBA labor relations and just turns it into this like two hour just electric Jerry Maguire level thriller that just like you're on the edge of your seat this entire time while you're watching Andre Holland go from boardroom to boardroom trying to end an NBA lockout and it shouldn't be as thrilling as it is but dear god Terrell Elvin McCraney is just so good at distilling down an experience that both treats its audience like adults and doesn't try and dumb it down while also just making it so simple and so universal and so easy to understand that ah, it's so good and he did the same thing in Moonlight and he does it again here and holy crap <laughs> the man blows my mind with how how good he is at doing this I, 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 I don't understand it and Booksmart is just Booksmart's a really solid teen comedy and it's really funny and it's really fun to watch and it's going to be something that I return to again and again and again because I really identified with those two characters and that's that on Booksmart. I just just watch this movie. I, I don't know what else to say. Adapted screenplay. I'm just going to start with the one two Marvel Cinematic Universe punch of Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home. These two movies had so many plates spinning in the air, had to juggle so many different things, and they're not always successful. But God, you can't help but admire them in the attempt. They're trying to wrap up in some way, shape, or form 11 years of movies that are all interconnected and just they do about as good of a job as they could especially the first hour of endgame which i would have taken a three-hour version of that and especially like scarlett johansson in this first hour is just incredible and the what they give her character to do it redeems the past like 10 years of of honestly not giving her much but like they give her they almost make up for it in this in that first hour and speaking of juggling like a million different things jojo rabbit is also not always successful but how do you make the holocaust funny apparently this is how by having an imaginary hitler played by a polynesian jew like i don't want to say it's almost mel brooks like because it's not mel brooks was a lot more farcical and this tries to have some element of serious drama in it but 
just the idea of Hitler being played by a Jew would feel right at home in The Producers or History of the World Part 1 or something like that, where it just, you can draw a clear through line of film history from something like The Great Dictator or The Producers to Jojo Rabbit and the way it it honors both the actual memory of the people who died, the people who lived through Nazi Germany and through the Holocaust and the film history of of Nazism and it and its depictions in both Hollywood and elsewhere, it it's really a feat to behold at the end of the day. The same thing can be said for Transit, which is an adaptation of a book that was released while the Nazis were empowered. It's an adaptation of a book that came out in 1944. This adaptation transplants the story of transit from 1944 to 2019, and it loses none of its power. Even though it's not explicitly about Nazism, it still takes this very small story about two people trying to escape, and it turns it into this this tale where where there's this obvious push and pull of them wanting to escape, but also them wanting to be together. And those two things are directly at odds because them wanting to be together means they don't leave this aggressive fascist state. And there's the push and pull of, do these characters want to be free or do these characters want to be together? And that's that's something that a lot of stories try to do it's a fairly obvious storytelling trope of having that push and that pull but it's very rarely done well and jesus transit does it well and you see something like that in the final nominee for adapted screenplay which is the farewell you have a push and pull instead of between two people it's between two cultures you have billy who is this is a chinese american but those two different sides of her are pushing and pulling because she wants to be honest in a culture that prizes happiness over honesty and respect. And Aquafina is just so good at taking Lulu Wong's script and bending it and twisting it and really showing that tension in really subtle movements and... She shows a lot of it in her face and the twists and the turns of the screenplay are just so, they can be abrupt, but they're so well telegraphed that they all make sense. And it's just, just a wonderful, wonderful screenplay. And that's why the fact that it got snubbed from the actual adapted screenplay nominations is more than a little infuriating. Okay, that's part one. Uh, to end off part one, I'll just go through, of these four categories, what I think would win in a perfect world, I guess. So, starting off with original screenplay, of those five, the five nominees were Knives Out, The Last Black Man at San Francisco, High Flying Bird, Booksmart, and Honey Boy. Of those five, I think the best one is Knives Out, uh, because it is just so intricate. And I think that's what would win of the five if you put it up to the Academy. 
The adapted screenplay nominees were The Farewell, Jojo Rabbit, Avengers Endgame, Transit, and Spider-Man Far From Home. Of those five, I think Jojo Rabbit would win just because it's the most popular. For director, you have Maddie Diop for Atlantics, Sam Mendes for 1917, Celine Sciamma for Portrait of a Lady on Fire, James Mangold for Ford v. Ferrari, Laj Lee for Les Miserables. Sam Mendes wins of these five. He is... And rightly so, because 1917 is a technical achievement. It is a technical masterpiece. You know, Manoa Dargis put Manoa Dargis, her, uh, like, subheader for her 1917 review was Technical Paths of Glory. And I think that's a pretty good summation of the film. And Best Picture, the six nominees were Parasite, The Lighthouse, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Little Women, Marriage Story and Apollo 11. Parasite is my favorite of those six. It is. I put it at number seven in my best of the decade list. And it's it's my favorite film of 2019 by far. It is. It can be obvious at times with its class metaphor, but it is just such a well-designed film. The script is so tight. The acting performances are so good they do justice to the script the production design is incredible the editing is incredible the score is incredible it's just such a good story and it's just such a good complete package that it just to me stands head and shoulders above anything else that came out in 2019.